Hello, everyone, and welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Justin Scase, Senior Editor of the EHS Daily Advisor, and we want to wish our listeners a Happy New Year and hope that you are doing all you can to keep yourselves and your workplaces healthy and safe amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Now, speaking of COVID-19, the world has been offered a glimmer of optimism for the coming year in the rollout of vaccines to combat the pandemic. Uh, However, environment, health, and safety professionals have a lot of questions about the vaccine and what their role, if any, should be in organizational vaccination programs. Fortunately, we're joined by an expert today who can help shed some light on these topics. On this episode of EHS on Tap, we're joined by Adele Abrams, president of the law office of Adele L. Abrams, PC. Adele is an attorney, safety professional, and trainer whose multi-attorney firm has offices in Beltsville, Maryland, Charleston, West Virginia, and Denver, Colorado, focusing on safety, health, and employment law nationwide. A frequent speaker at EHS Daily Advisor events, Adele is a certified mine safety professional, and she also provides consultation, safety audits, and training services to MSHA and OSHA-regulated companies. She will be presenting a webcast next week on January 28th titled COVID-19 Vaccine and Compliance, Unraveling Legal Complexities Surrounding Immunizations in Your Workplace. And ahead of this presentation, we're excited to hear some of her insights into the role of EHS in the fight against COVID-19 and their potential role in vaccination efforts. So Adele, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us today on EHS on Tap. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, the first question that I want to ask you, uh, it's a little bit uh, general to to COVID-19. There's no federal COVID-19 standard yet. Perhaps maybe we'll see one later on this year, although a handful of states have implemented emergency temporary standards. Now, how is this sort of uh, patchwork approach to this as a health and safety hazard? How has this impacted OSHA's ability to address the disease as a workplace hazard? Well, you know, we're about to have a new sheriff in town as as we are uh, uh, recording this. Uh, the inauguration mm-hmm. hasn't occurred yet, uh, but uh, with the new sheriff in town, so to speak, uh, I believe that federal OSHA will be enacting an emergency temporary standard in fairly short order. Um, they're no longer going to be needing a nudge from Congress to do it. And there had been legislation introduced uh uh, that would have supported OSHA doing a standard quickly, as well as uh, MSHA, the Mine Safety and Health Administration. But neither of those uh, bills obviously passed. And in, the problem is, in the wake of the inaction at the federal level that we've experienced uh, through 2020 and, and into 2021, uh, as you noted, the states have jumped in to fill the void. And typically, uh, as both an employment attorney and a safety and health attorney, uh, I look first to the federal, or excuse me, to the state OSHA states. And currently there are four of them who have adopted emergency temporary standards of their own, uh, Virginia, Michigan, Oregon, and California. And even Cal OSHA is continuing to tweak their standard uh, because of industry opposition to it. So these, these ETSs or emergency temporary standards were only intended to be in place for six months. And clearly, this is dragging out a whole lot longer than that. 
Um, mm-hmm. But but the problem is that they have uh, you know non-harmonious uh, provisions. And uh, to your point on the vaccine, uh, these emergency temporary standards at, in these four state plan states were all enacted before we had a vaccine that had been cleared for public uh, uh, administration. Uh, by the FDA. And so they don't speak to the vaccines at all. Uh, They are predicated upon social distancing, different levels of uh, face coverings or actual respiratory protection, uh, you know, doing an analysis of the workplace uh, and and triaging it into, you know, very high, high, medium and low risk uh, work sectors, and then having differing provisions. But it is very much, uh, you know, a, a crazy quilt where in Virginia, the rule kicks in if you have 11 employees in terms of a lot of documentation provisions. Oregon, it's 25 workers. And so certainly this is an area that screams out for some kind of overarching federal uh, rulemaking on this so that we have that. And, and I might add, uh, we also have state governments jumping into the breach, even in federal OSHA states, New Jersey being a good example, where the governor there enacted workplace safety provisions. And because uh, New Jersey is a federal OSHA state, uh, they they are having their health department uh, do the enforcement in the workplace, which is not a role that they're really uh, intended or trained for. And so um, where things stand right now, to sum up, None of the state plan rules, uh, none of the state policies, and there are, are about 10 states beyond those four state plan states that have some level of workplace safety requirements now dealing with COVID. They're just not enforced by OSHA. Uh, but none of them mandate uh, vaccines at this point, nor does federal OSHA. Um, they are recommending it, and you know I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss this a little bit further, but um, the bottom line is an employer at this point cannot point to OSHA and say, we're having to require this because OSHA is telling us we have to make you get it. Right, right. Absolutely. So moving along to uh, talking about the COVID-19 vaccine in particular, um, administration of the vaccine, at least as it relates to the workplace, how employers are approaching it, it's widely viewed as a human resources issue uh, because of the personnel issues involved and the the um, private health information involved, that sort of thing. But what role must EHS executives, managers, staff, um, what role must these folks play in the rollout of workplace vaccine programs and policies? Well, this is one of those uh, areas where, uh, as the saying goes, it takes a village. Um, And Mm. definitely uh, HR and the EHS professionals are going to have to work and play well together uh, because there are definitely overlapping considerations here. Uh, You know, for example, uh, from the EHS professional's uh, perspective, if a worker objects on safety grounds to getting the vaccine, that is protected activity under Section 11C of the OSH Act. Um, and at the same time, uh, the HR professionals are looking down the checklist from the EEOC saying, you know, can we require this under the ADA? Can we require this uh, you know, based upon religious uh, objections that might arise under Title VII, uh, ethnicity 
uh, objections even can come into play at times uh, if there are people whose uh, genetics uh, may put them at greater risk for complications, uh, you know, uh, and, and there are a lot of genetically oriented diseases. So that raises not only ethnicity considerations under Title VII, it also raises GINA, which is the Genetic Information uh, Non-Discrimination Act. Um, you know, beyond that, it's just a witch's brew. You've got HIPAA issues that can come up. You've got, if you're administering things through an employee uh, assistance program in some way, uh, you're going to have to abide by the EEOC's guidance for that. And, you know, going back to the EHS people, they're the ones doing the triage in the first place, determining which risk levels workers are at from an occupational health perspective. And then they're going to have to go back to HR and say, okay, we have this group of workers who really meet the definition uh, for group A or group B. And then we have this other group of workers who uh, really are not essential. I hate to say it that way, uh, but they, mm-hmm. they're not interfacing with the public. They're under 65. And so even there, uh, it's going to be a bit of a nightmare because you are essentially creating a, 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 a roadmap for disparate treatment among different classes of workers, and you're doing it in some cases by their job classifications. In other cases, you're doing it by their age. And uh, although we always think of the Age Discrimination and Employment Act as applying and protecting only people over 40, uh, and certainly that comes into play here because some older people, uh, maybe with compromised immune systems, may have some issues about the vaccine. We, we really don't know yet. Uh, but at the same time, some of the state non-discrimination laws, uh, Washington, D.C. is a good example, they protect you from any age discrimination. So if you're making it available to uh, the boomers and you're not making it available to the millennials, and you can't hang your hat on some overarching federal or state policy, then you could have exposure for discrimination claims as well. You know, it, it, as I said, it goes in a lot of different directions. Wow. Yeah. Very, very complex issue uh, there. Um, now, one a, a particular question that uh, comes up a lot in terms of the COVID-19 vaccine and employers in general there are a lot of questions surrounding whether an employer can mandate COVID-19 vaccinations for employees. Now, you mentioned that just briefly a little while ago, but could you tell us a little bit more about uh, what the facts are on this issue and what are the implications for our EHS professionals in our audience today? Yeah, this again, uh, as as the British would say, it's a sticky wicket. Um, (laughs) First of all, you know, as I said, there's no law right now requiring the vaccine. So now the employer is is having to take a step back and decide, are we going to mandate this, you know, on our own? uh, Or are we going to encourage it? And how are we going to encourage it? And one of the sticking points here. Uh, even though I know conventional wisdom is out there saying OSHA and and uh, uh, the EEOC have said it's okay to mandate the vaccine, uh, again we're going to have a, a change in administration, and there's no guarantee that the uh, new administration's OSHA and EEO policies on vaccines are going to be the same uh, as what we're currently. Uh, under because they were not done through a rulemaking. And so they are not binding. They can be changed without any notice even. 
Uh, the second issue, and this is huge, and I don't hear enough people talking about this, is that this vaccination or this vaccine only has been cleared for emergency use by the FDA. And so this really, in my view, complicates vaccine mandates. We don't have the long-term trials and efficacy demonstrated. We are having people having anaphylactic reactions to this and, and other reactions. And, uh, you know, so this, in, in my view, is quite different from, say, the hepatitis B vaccine that has to be offered to healthcare workers and other exposed workers under OSHA's bloodborne pathogen standard. The workers, the, even there, can sign a declination. So the OSHA rule for that does not mandate it. It's just recommended uh, for those highly exposed sectors. Uh, but it's a lot tougher to mandate something that hasn't really jump through all the hoops, you know, that normally you would. And, you know, every month or every couple of weeks, it feels like another vaccine is being rolled out. Uh, so, you know, we really don't know what we don't know at this point. And that, to me, uh, it gives me a little bit of pause in terms of uh, how the employer's mandate might be dealt with. Um, some other questions that come up in terms of the vaccine mandate uh, is, are you able for example, under the ADA, to show that this vaccine is going to be, you know, consistent with business necessity. If you're a doctor or a nurse, it probably is. If you're a secretary working remotely, it, you know, you've got a harder showing there for sure. And if you cannot show that your mandated vaccines are job related and business uh, consistent with business necessity, then you're going to have to allow for people to opt out uh, without retaliation. And again, that goes back to Section 11C of the OSH Act, as well as the anti-retaliation provisions under the ADA and, and Title VII, et cetera. Uh, you have to recognize, uh, you know, in a voluntary situation that the screening questions are going to be voluntary as well. Um, and there are going to be situations where an employee may get the required vaccine from a third party who does not have a relationship or a contract with the employer. So how are you going to chase down that information? Um, and then, of course, if you are administering the vaccine on site, uh, any of the uh, medical information that you get from the employee in the course of your vaccination program, you're going to have to treat as confidential medical information, again, protected under HIPAA. Uh, but just to, to add another angle to this, uh, what I hear, you know, questions from my clients is, well, can we incentivize the vaccine? You know, okay, we can't mandate it really, but can mm -hmm. we uh, dangle, you know, <laughs> dangle something in front of them that will make them uh, bite at it? Uh, a gift card, for example. And the danger there is that that has implications for economic coercion. And from a medical mm. ethics perspective, um, those administering the vaccine might have pause if a worker said, you know, I really don't believe in this. I'm scared to death to get this. Uh, I think I'm at risk, but they offered me a $100 gift card and I need that to pay my electric bill. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in those situations, a doctor or a nurse uh, or other licensed healthcare professional could refuse to administer the vaccine. So you really need to consider that because if you're allowing, you know, a lot of, uh, we'll call it the chiefs, the, the, C, the salaried people to opt out of the vaccines and you're trying to mandate it or coerce it through incentive programs for your hourly workers, 
you know, even though both sets of workers might have the same objections to the vaccine, uh, that is where you could end up getting into some trouble. Um, and I'll add one more issue on here. Uh, okay. we, we have a uh, fissured workplace. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that, uh, where we have a lot of uh, uh, multi-employer work sites. Uh, we mm. have your own direct employees, and then you might have temporary workers from a staffing agency. And especially with COVID, that is true, because if, if a lot of your regular people are, are down for the count, you might be bringing in people to a manufacturing facility from a temp agency. Um, and then you might also have contractors or subcontractors. Uh, and the new Department of Labor rule redefining who is an independent contractor is actually going to kick more workers into that non-employee classification. Well, what's the, the, the big takeaway on that is that if you have, if you administer the vaccine to one of these third parties, a subcontractor, or a, a temporary worker, uh, and they, they have a reaction, you don't have workers' comp coverage there. You are talking tort exposure for personal injury or wrongful death. Um, so that is a big deal. Um, for your own workers, if they have a complication from the vaccine, that is likely going to be covered under workers' comp. And you're also going to have to pay for the vaccine if, if you're mandating it. You're going to have to uh, uh, pay the worker for the time that it takes for them to do that, even if it kicks them into some overtime. Um, and you're going to have to consider whether to give them any kind of paid time off, since many people after the second shot need to take a day or two. Um, and that, again, is a way of encouraging the vaccine uh, uh, acceptance by workers. But, you know, if they know that they're going to have to take a couple of days of unpaid leave after it, uh, that is going to be a discouragement. So a lot of tight ropes to walk here. Um, a lot of sticky wickets, as you called them. Um, what's your biggest piece of advice that you would impart to EHS leaders, uh, when it comes to this topic right now? Well, the first thing I would tell them is look at your own data and look at the data to the extent it's available uh, in similarly situated uh, businesses. Uh, get a handle on what your rates are. Uh, and then, you know, because we don't have, as I said, any kind of overarching federal guidance on this, you can look to one of the state laws. Uh, Virginia is quite good. Um, and they give examples of different positions. They give examples of different industry sectors um, in terms of whether they are at low, medium, high, very high risk. And they give examples as well of the types of positions. And so you can take that as a bit of a framework for developing your own vaccination program. Um, and again, uh, you're going to have to overlay that with what is going on at your state level, uh, because uh, again, I hate to keep saying this, but because we don't have a federal vaccination administration program, uh, they're making the, the vaccines available in terms of the logistics to the states. But then the states are controlling who is going to get the vaccine first, what industries they're classifying as essential. And that is another war <laughs> that I'm seeing being mm -hmm. fought where every industry wants to be considered essential because it gives them more latitude in terms of, of, of remaining operational. Uh, but with that, uh, you know, bonus of being declared an essential service may come the obligation to uh, uh, consider more stringent uh, vaccination programs uh, or to include more workers 
in those programs. So uh, there, there's a lot of work that has to be done, I think, up front before a company can launch its own program. And, you know, certainly uh, from an EHS perspective, the more you're uh, doing this on site, you have to consider the pros and cons. You're not sending people to a clinic where they might be exposed and maybe carry it back into the workplace before the vaccine takes effect. Uh, but if you administer it on site, you have to make sure that it's done safely. You have to make sure, you know, vet the people that you're bringing in to do it. Uh, you don't want to just give the supervisor who happens to be on, uh, you know, uh, uh, disability uh, a needle and say, have at it, and, you know, jab everybody. <laughs> you know, you have to really have somebody who's going to be uh, able to observe the workers after they get the vaccine to make sure they don't have any untoward effects. And in some cases, it's 15 minutes. But if you have some certain underlying conditions, you may have to be observed for 30 minutes. So now you're thinking about where are these people going to hang out? Uh, you know, uh, if it's winter, you know, in Maine, you can't exactly have people hanging out in the parking lot to see if they fall over from the vaccine. So uh, again, a lot of logistical and planning work needs to be done before an employer can, can independently, I think, launch a vaccine program. Great, great. Good advice. Um, now, you're going to be presenting more info on this topic in an EHS Daily Advisor webcast uh, sponsored by Aveda on January 28th uh, next week. So what other aspects of this issue, in addition to the issues we've uh, covered here, will you be covering in this presentation? Well, uh, one of the issues we haven't already addressed is how any vaccine uh, workplace program is going to intersect with collective bargaining agreements uh, and unionized uh, workers. Uh, because again, many of those industries are considered uh, either critical infrastructure or essential workers, whether they are hospital workers, uh, and you have quite a few unions uh, in the hospital setting, teachers, uh, you have a lot of teachers unions, and then you have, you know, my buddies, the Teamsters and, and some of the others uh, who uh, are, are fairly heavily ingrained in the logistics and transportation sector, moving essential uh, uh, materials as part of the supply chain. And so those are going to be some of the industries that are going to be popping first in terms of uh, mandated vaccines. And it's going to be very interesting to see whether the NLRB, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, under President Biden, uh, puts out some guidance on that, uh, because definitely mandating a vaccine is considered a term and condition of employment, and it cannot be unilaterally imposed uh, without uh, either collective bargaining or some kind of consideration for your existing workers. So uh, that is going to be, I think, a real challenge. Uh, the other, uh, as I said, is having this hit at the same time as the new uh, Department of Labor independent contractor rule, which literally just came out in January 2021. Uh, it may be legally challenged, probably will be. Uh, but you know, how much control are you going to have over workers? If you uh, mandate a vaccine, you may be uh, interfering with one of the tests that might otherwise enable you to consider those people to be independent contractors and not have to pay FICA and everything else. Uh, so this is going to be, uh, you know, a, a, a tightrope, as you said, that worker, that employers are going to have to walk in determining whether they want people to be considered employees or they want them to be considered independent contractors under the new test, because that will give them a bit more control 
over uh, mandatory vaccination programs. Great. Well, thank you. It's a it's a very timely and important topic in health and safety, and we'll all be looking forward to learning even more um, next week during your webcast. So thanks again, Adele, for joining us today on EHS on Tap. Thank you. Everybody stay safe and be well. Yes, yes. So to learn more from Adele Abrams about how EHS can make an impact on organizational COVID-19 vaccine programs, register for her upcoming webinar, COVID-19 Vaccine and Compliance, Unraveling Legal Complexities Surrounding immunizations in your workplace, taking place on Thursday, January 28th at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. You can join this event today by navigating to our EHS Daily Advisor events page or via the links provided on this podcast episode's EHS Daily Advisor webpage. So we hope to see you there. And as always, keep an eye out for new episodes of EHS on Tap, and keep reading the EHS Daily Advisor to stay on top of your safety and environmental compliance obligations, get the latest in best practices, and keep your finger on the pulse of all things related to the EHS industry. Until next time, this is Justin Scase for EHS on Tap. Bye.